Nuclear contamination right in your own backyard. Yikes. When the 2018 Woolsey fire broke out at the highly contaminated Santa Susana Field Lab site, only 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles, it spread smoke, ash, and dust that contained radioactive microparticles into the surrounding towns and suburbs. A new peer-reviewed and published scientific study confirms that these particles traveled as much as nine miles from the site and were up to 19 times more radioactive than the background radiation we live with all the time. While members of the surrounding communities worry that this might have caused or still caused cancer in their parents, partners, or children, no one can say with complete certainty whether or not that is the case. But when they ask a genuine expert who's been working on Santa Susana Field Lab issues for decades for their advice, and she cautiously tells you. I told her quite honestly, I'm not able to tell you for sure one way or the other whether Santa Susana contamination caused cancer. But I can tell you that the contaminants on that site, if people are exposed to them, particularly young children, particularly young girls, that can cause cancer. And we do know that those contaminants get off the site. Well, when Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles delicately explains the known facts without offering an ultimate conclusion, because she can't, you just might be within your rights to assume that one plus one might equal two. And this is further evidence of how closely you have been living to that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, A follow-up to our special from two weeks ago, episode number 539, which presented the findings of a published, peer-reviewed scientific study showing the release of radioactive contamination, you might call it fallout, from the Santa Susana Field Lab in Simi Valley, California, during the 2018 Woolsey Fire. We'll review the findings of that study of 360 soil, dust, and ash samples, and then learn about what's been happening in the aftermath of that report. We'll talk with Denise Duffield, who serves as Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles Administrator, directs its nuclear threats program, and has been involved in the Woolsey Fire study since the fire was still burning. And we will, of course, talk with Melissa Bumstead, a local mom who helped to found Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab, and she tells us what's been happening in the local community, the response to the report, the questions, the emotions, which are running high, and the promise of some powerful follow-up by those most in the line of danger. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we have yet heard from the so-called 
experts at the COP26 United Nations Climate Change Summit. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., Decommissioning efforts for the Humboldt Bay Power Plant Unit 3 in California began in June 2009, more than 30 years after the power plant had ceased operations, and now is finally officially decommissioned. Pacific Gas and Electric Company recently filed a request with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to terminate the power plant's license. But that doesn't do anything about the waste. It's currently buried in an underground nuclear waste storage facility known as the Humboldt Bay Independent Spent Fuel Storage Insulation, or ISPSI, something like that. They say it will effectively contain the 37 tons of nuclear waste for approximately 50 years, but that's not a permanent solution when plutonium has a half-life of 24,000 years. To be continued... Again this week, a lot of substantive articles that we're going to link to so you have a chance to read your way through it. There's nuclear power plant operators want to run for eight decades, but a federal lab in Washington state found critical gaps in knowledge about how reactors age. Climate change emergency includes the threat of nuclear winter. Carl Grossman's excellent counterpunch article, The Push for Nukes in Space. And then there's always... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out week. The United States has tons of nuclear waste stored at reactors and inappropriate storage sites around the country. We've got more waste than we know what to do with. So what are we doing? We're planning to import more of it. And from Estonia. To make things worse, the importing company... Energy Fuels Resources, wants to bring that material into the White Mesa Mine near the Grand Canyon and adjacent to land of the Havasupai people, which has already filed numerous complaints and legal challenges against the mine for polluting the water supply and harming their ancestral lands. Domestic radioactive waste has been spilled along the main highway from trucks hauling material from Wyoming to White Mesa for processing, and children can no longer play outside because of the stench and the fear of what might be causing it. Now, the company wants to import 2,000 drums, 615 metric tons of radioactive waste from Estonia, which has no licensed facilities capable of processing its waste. First, however, the company has to amend its radioactive materials license, and Utah's Division of Waste Management and Radiation Control has been very accommodating. They received a huge volume of public comments once people learned about this issue. Nearly 12,000 of them opposed, compared to only 300 in support. Still, it granted Energy Fuels Resources requests this past summer because, you know, shh, money. According to Kamran Zafar, former staff attorney for the environmental nonprofit Grand Canyon Trust, Energy Fuels Resources is exploiting a regulatory framework that classifies radioactive byproducts as quote-unquote alternative feed rather than conventional uranium more. And they claim that they are getting out trace amounts of uranium that are left that other disposal facilities couldn't, meaning from the Estonian waste. 
But what they're really doing, Zafar said, is getting paid to dispose of the vast majority of that waste at the White Mesa Mill permanently. And because they're not a properly licensed radioactive waste facility, they can do it at much cheaper cost than the other facilities could. More than 99.73% of the ship material from Estonia will be stored at White Mesa. And that's why Energy Fuels Resources and any government agencies that allow them to move forward in this way, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Numbnuts of the Week. All those titles I mentioned, plus numbnuts, will be linked on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. This episode is number 541. In Japan, Industry Minister Koichi Hagyuda pledged to promote the decommissioning of the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant and recovery of the area as a top priority. He told Fukushima Governor Masao Uchibori that his ministry will make best efforts to release radioactive water from the facility that was hit by a massive earthquake and tsunami in March of 2011. And he was asked to take effective measures against the reputational damage associated with the planned discharge of what they're calling treated water, which is really still radioactively contaminated with tritium water. Current plans are for Japan to begin releasing that tritium water into the Pacific Ocean as of the spring of 2023. International pushback to this plan continues. And we'll link to an article, Nuke Disaster Radiation Continues to Threaten Traditional Ways of Life in Northeast Japan. More nuclear reporting from Turkey by our friend Pinar Demirjan, where for the second time in just six months, another fire broke out at the Ikuyu nuclear power plant construction site, this time due to an explosion in the transformer. The construction company claims that it was caused by a lightning strike to the energy transmission line and partially damaged the infrastructure of the power lines in the substation area. Since 2019, Cracks have been detected in the foundation on site, water leaks on the ground, work accidents, and two explosions. But despite concerns raised, the Erdogan administration still holds that the Akuyu nuclear power plant, which was scheduled to be operational on the 29 October Republic Day in 2020, in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Republic, will be completed before that date. Reporter Demir Jean responds, this will be used as election propaganda. And Scotland's only working nuclear power plant at Torness shut down in an emergency procedure when jellyfish clogged the seawater cooling intake pipes at the plant. Blooms of translucent jellyfish with their trailing stinging tentacles are sometimes described as invasions because they often emerge en masse in a way that appears sudden. Often these blooms are encouraged by the warmer water that comes from cooling water that is ejected from a nuclear facility. So the nuclear reactor is creating its own problem. Jellyfish previously shut down the Tornes nuclear power plant in 2011 at a cost of approximately 1.5 million American dollars per day. Swarms of these invertebrates have also been responsible for nuclear power plant shutdowns in Israel, Japan, the United States, the Philippines, South Korea, and Sweden. Which gives us all hope. Which gives us all hope. Because if spineless, brainless, bloodless animals like jellyfish can shut down a nuclear reactor, think of how much more we can do once we all start working together. 
Now here's the first of this week's two featured interviews. Two weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat number 539, we presented a special on the findings of a peer-reviewed and published scientific paper on the radiological contamination that spread over local Los Angeles neighborhoods during the 2018 Woolsey Fire. The fire began on the 2,670-acre former Rocketdyne testing site in the foothills above Los Angeles and less than 30 miles from downtown. In 1959, an experimental nuclear reactor on-site experienced a meltdown of its core fuel rods. The radiation released was not held in a containment building because there was no containment building, so they vented it out into the air without notification to the people living nearby. The accident was never reported and was only discovered 20 years after it happened, after Three Mile Island. That meltdown, plus numerous radioactive spills and burn pits for radioactive waste on site, created a highly toxic brew of chemical and radiological contamination in the dust, dirt, water, and vegetation. The Woolsey fire broke out on the Santa Susana Field Lab site and burned through plants and radioactive areas, though not the most contaminated parts. Parents Against Santa Susana Field Lab, the group that has been fighting for a full cleanup of the site, which current owner Boeing has been trying to get downgraded so they don't have to pay as much money, that group immediately suspected release of contaminants into the smoke, which wafted in all directions. I live approximately 30 miles to the east of the site, and the wind was blowing in the west-southwesterly direction, but I could smell smoke on that first day of the fire within hours of its start. Of course, the official so-called experts from California's Department of Toxic Substance Control, DTSC for short, announced within nine hours of the start of the fire, when they couldn't even get on the site, that there was no radiation release. So there, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it. But less than three weeks after the fire broke out, citizen scientists conducted a collection of 360 random samples of soil, ash, and car filter dust within a 10-mile radius of the Santa Susana Field Lab. Now, after three years of testing, compiling data, and writing up a report, that material has been peer-reviewed and accepted for publication in the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity. The report shows that 3% of the samples were contaminated with radioactive microparticles, some as much as 19 times above background levels, and found as far as nine miles away from the border of the site. So what has been the immediate impact of this bombshell report? That's what we're about to find out. Our first guest today is Denise Duffield. She serves as Physicians for Social Responsibility LA's administrator, directs its nuclear threats program, and also advocates for health protective policies related to nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Denise also works on environmental health and justice issues, addressing the needs of local communities which are impacted by toxic contamination and the failure of regulatory agencies to protect them. She leads PSRLA's efforts to ensure a full cleanup of the Santa Susana Field Lab. I spoke with Denise Duffield on October 28, 2021. Denise Duffield, thank you for joining us on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure to be here. 
long has PSR, Physicians for Social Responsibility, been working towards a cleanup of the Santa Susana Field Lab? We've been involved since the uh, late 70s when the meltdown was first discovered by Dan Hirsch. Our organization has always been uh, close with Committee to Bridge the Gap. Committee to Bridge the Gap had a role actually in our founding, working with our founder, Dr. Richard Saxon, who lived in the Valley. And so I was also personally concerned about Santa Susana. The real activism began in the late 80s around the organizing to stop the relicensing of the hot lab. And that's also when the Rocket Dying Cleanup Coalition was founded. And PSR uh, is an organizational ally, part of that coalition, along with, of course, community members who live near the site, Committee to Bridge the Gap, and the Southern California Federation of Scientists. One of the groups that's been most active lately, or at least most visible lately, is Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab. What has been PSR's connection with that group? We provide leadership development and technical assistance to parents versus SSFL. It was, I believe, in 2015 when there was a meeting of the ATSDR, which is the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. And they had been asked to come in to the Santa Susana community by some folks who opposed the cleanup. They've been asked to come in and basically refute previous studies on health impacts and offsite contamination, and then weigh in on the cleanup, which is absolutely outside of that agency's purview. It is an agency that is known for doing sort of quick and shoddy studies to declare the all clear on contaminated sites. And so we mounted what thought at that time was going to be very hard, very much an uphill battle, but we were successfully able to get them to back out. But it was at that first meeting when Melissa Bumstead and Lauren Hammersley and several other mothers first showed up and talked about their experience about meeting each other at Children's Hospital and realizing that they live near each other and that they all live near the Santa Susana Field Lab. And at that time, those of us who've been doing this fight for a long time, we just turned white because we'd heard this story before, this exact same story of mothers meeting at Children's Hospital. And in this case, in 2006, there were mothers whose children all had retinoblastoma, which is a rare eye disease impacting young children. They even had a chemo carpool. And they ultimately ended up suing Boeing. And from the documentation we've been able to see, did prevail in that lawsuit, but were no longer able to talk about it as part of the settlement. So hearing this happening again, just felt sick to our stomach. And I approached Melissa, gave her my card. And I think it was maybe some weeks after that, she sent me an email and we had further communications. And I told her quite honestly, I'm not able to tell you for sure one way or the other, whether Santa Susana contamination caused cancer, but I can tell you that the contaminants on that site, if people are exposed to them, particularly young children, particularly young girls, that can cause cancer. And we do know that those contaminants get off the site. And there's multiple exposure pathways. And some of those exposure pathways happen when it's very windy and the contaminants in the soil are made aloft via dust. Of course, if you ingest that, that becomes a much higher dose than you would have if you just walk by a contaminated particle. Also, rain brings the contamination off the hill as well. And of course, fires, which we know now. And 
There was in 2005, uh, Santa Susana had burned previously. We know that. And development near the site, which has been my number one concern, particularly for this group of children, because we know that the development for Runkle Ranch, that Strontium 90 was found in the soil by previous would-be developers. During the construction, we had people calling us, telling us, hey, there's, there's dust all over my solar panels. They had read the articles about the Strontium 90. So part of my concern is that part of what may have caused some of the recent pediatric cancers has to do with that development. But the bottom line is we are able to say with certainty, the contaminants on that site can cause cancer if you're exposed to them and the contaminants do get off site and people are exposed to them. And that's why our focus is on the cleanup. And so little by little, Melissa began to get more involved, formed her group. It's now become a force to be reckoned with. She and Jenny and Lauren and other mothers are just tremendous advocates for their community, really know what's best for the community in ways that I necessarily don't. There's one story I like to tell, which is a good example of why it's so important to have leadership on the ground. When we were planning for the 60th anniversary of the meltdown event, Melissa and other parents said they wanted a fun, family-friendly event. And I, as a, from PSR, was like, I don't know if you can do that. This is a nuclear meltdown. This is great. People died, you know, and they did it. They pulled it off. They had an event that had rock painting and kids painted rocks in honor of friends that had cancer or workers who had trouble. They had postcard writing. They had Kona ice and art. And we had moving speakers too. So to me, it was really a good example of how she knew her community. They know their community and I can provide technical assistance. I can say, here's where these reports are. This is the history of this site. This is what we know about the science, but I don't live in that community and she does. And so the partnership between parents um, versus SSFL and PSRLA has really evolved as time has gone on to the point now where they're leading everything. Parents versus SSFL make their own decisions on their campaigns. They know their community best. And the information and the support and the information that I have to impart in terms of both knowledge and skills is still helpful. But they have grown now to the point and expanded their own knowledge set so much that the role that we play now is really more a supportive role in whatever way we can do. And that includes being a fiscal sponsor so that they can raise funds to do the initiatives that they want to do. The study was just published in a peer-reviewed journal of the analysis of dust and dirt and ash samples that were taken after the Woolsey fire. What was PSR's involvement in the creation of that study and your involvement since it has been published in a peer-reviewed journal? Well, to back up a little bit, PSRLA's involvement was in the whole disaster that was the Woolsey fire was, first of all, we were the ones to break the news that that fire was not near the Santa Susana Field Lab. It was on the Santa Susana Field Lab. We were able to piece together information. The initial news reports kept saying, you know, alpha and eroder or, or near rocket dying. And we had people watching the TV news as the helicopters were flying over it and showing the flames up around the rocket test stands. And a helicopter reporter, Stu Mundell, said 
uh, getting some calls about radiation. You know, that's just rumors, folks. And so somebody said, you know, Stu Mundell said these are just rumors. So I went on his Twitter page to try to contact him. And that's where I found the photo that he had taken right as the fire started as he was flying on his way to another one. And we know that land. And we were like, that is on the site proper. We'd heard that there was a disturbance at the Chatsworth substation and was able to find out the Chatsworth substation is on the property. That, that substation was built to deliver the power from the reactor that melted down to the city of Moore Park. And so we knew. So that was our, our first involvement, what really was in breaking that news. We received calls from concerned citizens and from Fairwinds who had been contacted by those concerned citizens shortly thereafter. And so our role then was sort of to be help coordinate the community volunteers that we're going out and taking the sample studies. You'll see uh, Mikey Rincon, PSRLA's policy researcher and some of the photos that have been in some of the news articles, working with Jenny Knack from Parents versus SSFL. Mikey also lives in Thousand Oaks, so it was personal to him. We helped more or less coordinate that. All of the protocol information and training, all of that came from Fairwinds and all of the work itself was done by volunteers and volunteers who offered their homes. But our role was much more of an in-between facilitating one. And of course, since the studies come out, we wrote a press release, we put it out there, several good pieces of coverage, including NBC Los Angeles, which did a fantastic five-minute segment. Among the actions that were taken with the release of this new study, there was a letter drafted that was sent to Cal EPA, California Environmental Protection Agency. Who sent it? Who pulled it together? And what did it say? There were two letters. One was a federal letter that was from federal elected officials that was signed by uh, Senator Padilla, Congresswoman Julia Brownlee, Brad Sherman, whose district it's in, three other Congress people. That effort was led by Sherman and Brownlee's office together. Julie Brownlee's been fantastic on this and always has been, and so has Brad Sherman. And so they jointly uh, circulated that to their colleagues. The other letter that was signed by local officials, two Ventura County supervisors, mayors, city council members from LA and from other cities, that was spearheaded by Linda Parks, the Ventura County supervisor, Linda Parks. She and her office had the responsibility for circulating that and getting all of those signatures. What was PSR's involvement with the letters? Getting them out to the world. I mean, you know, we, we have communications with our elected officials about what some of the issues are. So we're always communicating to them the problems with, for example, the um, cleanup standards. So that was some of the information that was in the letters came from information that we've been talking to them about expressing our concerns. But they wrote the letters They got the signatures, they drafted the letters, I mean, they sent them out. We just helped amplify that to the media. Some of the information in these letters regards the ongoing secret negotiations between the state, between Gavin Newsom's administration and Boeing that could have the effect of further delaying or lessening the cleanup, allowing Boeing to walk away from cleaning up most of the contamination. Fill us in on what that looks like and how can something this important be conducted in secret? It shouldn't be. I guess in the same way that a contaminated site can allow it to remain contaminated for 60 years, things happen that 
shouldn't happen. There should be no secret negotiations with Boeing. The people who are most impacted by these decisions need to, if not be in the room when they're made, there needs to be an official process by which they weigh in. And that's not an environmental impact report. By the time that this information, what they're doing, what they're negotiating, gets its way into an environmental impact report, it's almost too late. So it's an outrage that they're doing this. Weakening the cleanup happens on a very technical level. And these are some questions that you should ask Dan Hirsch when you talk to him to explain how it is that this happens, because it's something that I get like kind of here, but people need to understand it, you know, here. <laughs> I'm moving my hand for those, those who are listening. But basically, there's factors that go into determining a cleanup that depend on the uptake value of plants in your garden, how much would be used for consumption, what percentage of that should go into calculating how much contamination can be cleaned up. And if any of those input factors are adjusted, it has dramatic consequences for how much contamination gets cleaned up. So at the end of the day, Cal EPA, DTSC, and Boeing can say, we're doing a residential cleanup, but not all residential cleanups are the same depending on what you're putting in for the backyard garden, depending on what kind of factors you're using when you make those calculations. And the devil is always in the details. And that's where we really rely on experts like Committee to Bridge the Gap and the many um, wonderful staff that Dan has now that can analyze these documents and, and be in conversations with Cal EPA and DTSC and point it out to them and say, hey, this is wrong. And so what we've experienced with Cal EPA is pretty much like a, it's almost like whack-a-mole where they propose one reason why they want to change the cleanup standards. And we say, nope, that doesn't work. You didn't take this into effect. They go back to their corner. They come back with something else. And the feeling that I have is perhaps the deal's already made. And now they're just in the point of trying to justify it. And that's why if it's not one thing, we point out the problems in that it becomes something else. And I think there are people that work at the agency. There are obviously good people that work at the agency but there's other folks that are sort of on what we call the Weeby level, which is they can say to any administration, we be here before you, we be here after you, you know, so we do what we want. And that's where a lot of the bad things happen. So people who are the director of DTSC, even the, the secretary of Cal EPA, they're going to look at those recommendations from their staff and take them as face value. And they shouldn't. And we're the ones that can point out why they shouldn't. They then are in the position of having to either go back to their staff and have some issues there or just covering up and saying, no, we're going to go with it. And unfortunately, that's what's been happening lately. So I hope that we are in a position. I hope that these particularly that the elected officials who are really taking a stand are able to stop these negotiations and stop this funny math that's going into weakening the cleanup standards before it happens, that the deal hasn't already been struck because the public will have an opportunity to weigh in on another environmental impact report, probably in the fall or the winter. But if this bad information gets into it, it just makes it that much harder. Going back to the fact that this report was released just less than two weeks ago as we are speaking, what has been the most immediate impact of it on the community? And has there been any impact that you know of on the official agencies that are connected with the cleanup? The community's angry. They're not shocked because nobody trusted DTSC in the first place. It's not just seen as Suzanne. I mean, contaminated sites in frontline communities throughout the state 
are outraged with DTSC's failure to protect them for really placing polluters over people. Nobody trusted DTSC when the fire had only been burning for nine hours and they basically gave the all clear. Didn't even tell people to wear masks, which would be advisable in any fire situation. Didn't trust them then. Don't trust them now. So the community's upset. They're angry, but they're not surprised. In terms of the agencies, you know, from the statements I've seen so far, they're just doubling down and sticking by their propaganda that they published six weeks after the fire and then doubled down on last year. I don't know that it's going to have an impact on them at all. For the community, I think it just reaffirms that we can't trust DTSC. How has the media coverage been? Again, I think that the NBC Los Angeles piece was fantastic. BC Star, Daily News both did articles that were great. They vary in terms of what aspects they focus on. I think that the world that we live in today, with the multiple crises that we're facing, Make a story about radiation being released over a populated area during a wildfire three years ago, far less impactful than it would have been if we weren't having democracy on the line, if we weren't having, you know, crazy climate crises impacting us, if we didn't have so many of the other problems that we have now, it's a different environment. I think there's a certain crisis or disaster, you know, fatigue that impacts all of us, whether members of the public and the media and that it would have had a different reaction and a different weight if this would have been like, say, five years ago, six years ago. Now we've got so many, (laughs) we're saturated with really terrible problems, environmental problems in particular. Was there any coverage from the LA Times? There wasn't. Well, there was a little mention that Sammy Roth has a newsletter and it was included in that. The Times has had some some decent coverage of Santa Susana. Um, Michael Hiltzik has run some articles. We have had, I think it was an, an earlier piece this year by Sammy Roth, but we did not have coverage from the Times on this story. What can listeners do to keep this issue in the media, in front of the public, and be of support, be of genuine support to you and the families that live in the area? For one, letters to the editor are very effective. We see, for example, the Simi Valley Acorn ran a piece entirely about a gentleman who, Brian Sujatha, who was worked for Boeing for 17 years as the project manager for the SSFL cleanup and is now repurposed himself as a concerned community member. And it was a piece just about how great the site is, how great the cleanup is, how they're protecting nature. That deserves a response. You know, and we did get some letters to the editor. So I think either letter in response, you can write a letter to the editor. You can just write one. Hey, why didn't you guys study? Why didn't you cover this? This is important news. I think Parents versus SSFL's Facebook page and their list is one of the best places that people can go to get, as it happens, breaking news about the site. PSRLA, we're not going to get update our website that quickly. We're not going to be on, you know, we do a lot of work. But they have an amazing Facebook group and Facebook page where there's always late breaking news and there's always when we need somebody to contact an elected official. And that's the other thing. Even though we have really good champions for the cleanup, it doesn't hurt to to let your elected elected official know that you care about this and you want the site to be cleaned up. And you can either thank them for signing that letter or you can say, we really need you to stand up for us more. This site needs to be cleaned up. They're called representatives for a reason. They represent the people. And there is someone who represents you, dear listener. There are multiple people that represent you and they need to hear from you. 
if they're going to represent you, they need to know what your concerns are. And that means you need to tell them. Denise Duffield, you have been a supporter, a resource, a booster, and an important person in the interconnect of so many people who have been working to get Santa Susana Field Lab cleaned up to the highest standard possible. And unfortunately, the work's not over, but at least that will give us a chance to talk again in the future for the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Los Angeles. We'll have this week's second featured interview on the reactions and fallout from the peer-reviewed Santa Susana Field Lab Woolsey Fire Study in just a moment. But first, nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, permissible quote-unquote radiation exposures, The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet, despite the known risks of this technology, the industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and life itself and disguising itself with endless propaganda. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here to help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide them with context and continuity so you can understand the full picture. In addition to a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect to find on mainstream media, we always include a healthy dose of skepticism and a dollop of humor whenever possible. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back and how any one of us, that means you sitting there listening to this, can take action towards stopping the nuclear madness. But here at Nuclear Hot Seat, we need your help to keep doing this work. It's not inexpensive. So here's something that you can do right now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red donate button, and help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a recurring donation as little as $5 a month. And hey, that's like buying us a cup of coffee and giving a nice tip to the barista here in the U.S. So if you value in-depth reports like the ones we're giving you here, please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's second featured interview. I wouldn't dream of reporting on anything regarding Santa Susana Field Lab without checking in with Melissa Bumstead. Melissa became an accidental activist for the SSFL cleanup after her four-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive form of leukemia in 2014. Melissa founded Parents Against SSFL, an extremely active group with a well-organized, highly informative Facebook group and a website. I spoke with Melissa Bumstead about the Woolsey fire, the new study, and its ongoing aftermath on October 29, 2021. Melissa Bumstead, great to be talking with you again for Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me, and I love talking with you. Let's start out again with a little bit of background. You have been working towards getting the grounds of the Santa Susana Field Lab cleaned up of its radiation contaminants and its chemical contaminants for years now, since long before the Woolsey fire. What was your first awareness of that fire and what were your concerns? I'm trying to remember who called me 
the day I remember we were standing in the kids' karate studio and I said, hold on, I got to take this call and stepped out and you could just start to smell the smoke. And the person on the phone said, the Woolsey fire is burning through the Santa Susana field lab. And my heart just dropped. That was very, very frightening. And I ended up spending that whole night trying to reach from one contact to another to try to get a hold of the state air quality board to see if they would issue some sort of warning that parents should not let their children out. Because at that point, the smoke wasn't so pervasive that kids could probably still go to school the next day. We didn't really realize how out of control the fire would grow to be. But at the time, I was worried that nobody would think twice about letting their children walk to school or play on the playground or any of those things that could potentially expose them to radioactive smoke or ash from the fire. They said no, they didn't do it. And your assumption from the start was that with the fire burning through that particular site, there would be radiation in the smoke, in the ash. And potentially chemical contamination as well. When did you first learn that only nine hours after the fire began, the California Department of Toxic Substance Control was already issuing a statement that there was no release of radioactivity or toxic chemicals from the fire? When I got up the next morning, I read that. And of course, I didn't believe them. So I actually called the Ventura County Fire Department Hazmat Unit because that's who the DTSE referenced as one of their resources for declaring it safe. Uh, They had never talked to anyone from the DTSE. They had no idea that the SSFL was potentially contaminated. Then I called the Los Angeles Hazmat Unit. They don't have a hazmat unit like that. So I went on Facebook and shared that neither unit had spoken with the DTSC, yet the DTSC referenced them as the definitive source at that time for saying that the Woolsey fire had no chance of being contaminated. The next day, there was a new release from the DTSC and had no mention of either the LAFD or the Ventura County Fire Department hazmat units. They referenced new sources that would declare it to be completely safe. And then they also included the fact that they had not yet been able to access their actual air monitoring equipment because of the fire, but they were already saying it was safe. In the immediate aftermath of the fire, or perhaps while it was still burning, who first contacted the Gundersons at Fairwinds Energy Education and or Dr. Marco Kaltofen of the Worcester Polytechnic Institute about conducting a study of the soil, dust, and ash for possible radioactive contaminants. I believe residents in Malibu were the first to contact them and then the Gundersons and Dr. Kaltofen contacted Denise with Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles and wanted to know if we wanted to get involved. And of course, the answer was yes. How did it proceed from there? And how soon were the first samples taken? Well, we wanted to make sure that whatever we did was completely foolproof. We didn't want the DTSC to be able to come back and point to any flaw or fault in our soil collecting or or any of the process. So that's when uh, we first brought in Jenny Knack, who is amazing. She's been committed to helping us with the cleanup for the last three years. And she has a background as an anthropologist and has done archaeological digs. So that just seemed like a natural. Donations from the community, we were able to hire her. And she went out with several different volunteers from the community and was very strict with the protocol that that woman is organized. She either oversaw or went herself to get almost every residential sample that we got from the Woolsey Fire. I think that was happening within 
maybe two to three weeks after the fire. And there had been no major rainstorm or windstorm in that period to affect where the samples were taken from and what the radiation was that possibly had come down and would be shown by the samples. Well, the Woolsey fire itself, I think it raged for days. I don't even remember exactly how many days, but by the time the fire was out, it was also because the winds were gone. So no, there was no big rain or wind after that. So that was a pretty pure and immediate sample that was taken from all of the 360 locations. What was your involvement in the citizen science of collecting samples? I was not actually that involved with the collecting of samples. I joined Jenny a few times and she told me what to do and I did it. Being organized really isn't my big skill set. So I let her be the boss and she was fantastic at it. What happened during that same amount of time is that my friend Stacy Hurst and I went on a social media campaign to try to warn residents about the potential of breathing in contaminated smoke and warn them to get N95 masks. We wanted to make sure that they were keeping their kids inside during recess. Through that, the Kardashians saw one of our tweets and they retweeted it. So immediately we're getting hundreds of thousands of tweets and followers and we're getting calls from news channels who wanna know who are these people who the Kardashians are tweeting about. So on, on my end, we were mostly dealing with press and social media Jenny was working hard in the field. I believe the Kardashians also have a family compound that was in the smoke plume from the Woolsey fire. So it was personal to them. Well, that was just Kim Kardashian. So the mom also lived nearby. She had her house tested for soil samples. Uh, Jenny and I went and did that. And then also Courtney Kardashian, her children go to school in the fire zone and Kim Kardashian. So they were all very concerned. They had a close family friend whose husband had died from a very random and rare cancer. Um, they were very well aware that the cancer rates out here already seemed wrong to them. So when the fire hit, they were incredibly concerned. We even actually got to go on a, a TV show with them. We we're on the Kardashians. How crazy is that? It's been three years now, and the study of those samples has just been published as of October 8th in the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity. Press materials were released as of October 12th, and of course, we've been covering it here on Nuclear Hot Seat. What has been the response to this reveal of the impact of the fire and the possible contamination in their own backyards? We were very fortunate. Joel Grover from the NBC4 Los Angeles investigative team, he's already done, I think, 10 different episodes about the Santa Susana Field Lab. He's very knowledgeable. So he knew immediately when this study came out how important it would be. It was the trending story for that day, I believe, for a few days after. And I think it helped people understand that the Santa Susana Field Lab is not some urban legend or myth. The contamination can reach into our community I and mean, it became an immediate threat to a lot of people who I think assumed they didn't need to choose a side of the fence. The results from the Woolsey Fire soil study, it didn't give them that option anymore. What has other media coverage been like? Has it remained in public awareness or has it faded even this few weeks later? Well, we did get a lot of press coverage. We had a front page article in the Ventura County Star. The Los Angeles Daily News covered it. An article by Sammy Roth in LA Times mentioned it. So it had a lot of coverage. 
but mostly I would say that now it's the people who are still concerned. I'm, I'm getting messages every day on Facebook and through social media and emails saying, am I safe? What do I need to do? Do we need to move? You know, and it's, those are the hardest questions because I can't give a definitive answer. I can only point back to the study and say the risks are real. That's why we need the cleanup because every day is a risk. I mean, today it's been incredibly windy out here and that puts us at risk. Hopefully people are now more educated to realize that every day is a risk at the Santa Susana Field Lab. The, the Woolsey fire made it much more mobile, the contamination, a larger amount than what you would normally see. But that doesn't mean that it's benign all the other days when it's windy or raining or when the next fire comes through. So I think it's done a huge service to the community to help them realize that until the whole site is cleaned up, our families are always going to be at risk every day. What response, if any, has there been to the report and its publication in a peer-reviewed journal by either the Department of Toxic Substance Control, DTSC, or California Environmental Protection Agency, CAL-EPA? I believe that Joel Grover and his story reached out to both CAL-EPA and DTSC for a statement, and they declined to give one, to my knowledge. I have not heard anything definitive from them. So delay, deny, until you die. That's what they say about so many things that are involved with nuclear. What actions, if any, are being planned by the group that you helped to found, Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab, in the wake of this proof that radioactive particles were released and dispersed in the smoke of the Woolsey fire? We have several things that we're working on right now, but I'm afraid I'm not able to talk about them, but I will give you an update as soon as those become public. What would you like to see happen? Well, obviously I would like to see the DTSC start making some public statements towards the full cleanup to say that they're not going to negotiate with Boeing, that they're not going to accept the supplemental environmental impact statements from NASA and the Department of Energy. I would like to see those agencies start to protect the people But I really believe that it's going to be up to the people to put enough pressure on our elected officials and on Cal EPA and even our governor. When we stand up and we demand the cleanup, it'll take all of us. I think it'll take every voice probably in all of Southern California, put enough pressure to outweigh the pressure that Boeing and NASA and the Department of Energy are putting to not have the cleanup. Melissa Bumstead, you have done and continue to do, and I know will continue to do important organizational work around the cleanup of Santa Susana Field Lab. And as always, thanks for coming on Nuclear Hot Seat and filling us in on the latest. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa Bumstead of Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab. By the way, her daughter is now 11 years old and cancer-free. May it stay that way. If you want to know more about the Santa Susana Field Lab, the peer-reviewed paper, and actions that Melissa couldn't talk about yet but will be forthcoming soon, we will have links up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 541. You can also join up with the Parents Against SSFL group on Facebook, where all the latest information is posted. And the excellent award-winning film on Santa Susana Field Lab, In the Dark of the Valley, will have its first public presentation on MSNBC 
on Sunday, November 14 at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific time. This is a really well-done film that completely explains the situation using archival footage, talking heads, animation, and even Kim Kardashian. We will have a link up to the Nuclear Hot Seat interview that we conducted with the film's producer, Derek Smith, that will also be on our website under this episode. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. It is with sadness that we share of the passing of Sunal Tsuboi. He was an influential campaigner for nuclear disarmament who survived the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima. He died on Sunday, October 24th, of arrhythmia caused by anemia. He was 96 years old. Tsuboi drew international attention when he met and spoke with then-U.S. President Barack Obama in 2016 while he visited Hiroshima and the site of the atomic bombing, becoming the first sitting U.S. president to do so since the bombing occurred on August 6, 1945. Tsuboi was a student at the predecessor to Hiroshima University when the bombing occurred. He was only 1.2 kilometers from ground zero, less than a mile, when he was exposed to the blast and suffered severe burns. In the aftermath, he developed bowel and prostate cancers and severe anemia. He devoted himself to anti-nuclear activities, conveying the horror of nuclear weapons for decades at home and abroad, and calling for their eliminations. He said, we want zero nuclear weapons. May it be so. And sometimes we get support and truth from unexpected sources. I'm a fan of the British TV program Call the Midwife, possibly the most compassionate female-centric TV show that's ever been created. While the first nine seasons are now on Netflix, the tenth season is available for free on the PBS online site, pbs.org. In the episode I watched last night, which is episode one of this season, one of the multiple storylines followed a woman who gave birth to a stillborn baby, which had no lower legs. It turns out her husband had been in the British military in the late 1950s and had been on board ship next to nuclear bomb site and exposed to the point where he could see the bones in his hands through the skin. His close friend, also from the military at that time, had a daughter who was born without three fingers, and he developed serious medical problems. The show presented the doctor putting the pieces together, then asking for medical records from the government only to be denied for suspicious reasons. He even watched film footage, which we also saw, of the nuclear blast that was taken by one of the soldiers. The growing horror of this doctor and his wife, who is also a nurse, at the realization that exposure to radiation from the bomb was implicated in all the medical problems that they tracked down, mutations, stillbirth, hemorrhages in the father, even someone dying of leukemia, and that the government was complicit in covering up the medical details, this was stunning in its impact and totally unexpected. I watched Call the Midwife to get away from nuclear matters, not to get plunged into it. This is the most honest depiction I've seen in popular media of what it means to suddenly get that those nuclear bomb tests have had an ongoing, terrifying impact on life and health, and your government does not want you to know about it. And this was totally unexpected. 
Despite the fact that, in the past, this series has regularly included passing references to atomic bombs, fears, and even protests. I don't yet know if this storyline will continue or if it was a one-shot, but I will post a link to the PBS.org site with that episode. I don't know if that is accessible outside of the United States. Series 10 has already aired in the UK, and it will be on Netflix after the first of the year. So hopefully, even if you can't get it on PBS, you will be able to access it. Call the Midwife, an anti-nuclear TV series that tells the truth. Who knew? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN.org, fairwinds.org, radiationfreelakeland.org, thebulletin.org, hcn.org, seattletimes.com, commondreams.org, counterpunch.org, japantimes.co.jp, yesilgazette.org, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you would like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's the easiest way to not miss out on a single episode. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. First name, email address, we don't bug you, we just get the show to you. Now, you can help us out because if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. That's how we find out what's really happening on the ground around the world. And if you appreciate these weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to nuclearhotseat.com and look for that big red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and know that whatever you can do to help We will greatly appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to all things nuclear, not only can what you don't know hurt you, there's a good chance that it already has. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So here's the brief. Don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.